All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. Today, I'm joined by Alyosha Oship, a postdoc at the Technical University of Munich and Carnegie Mellon University. Before we jump into today's conversation, please be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Alyosha, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking about your work in robotic vision and some of the papers you'll be presenting at CVPR. Before we get there, though, I'd love to have you introduce yourself to our audience and share a bit about how you came to work in the field. Yes, sure. So first, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here today and to have this opportunity to to present our work that we are going to present at the CVPR next week. So I will just start with a little bit of background about myself. Uh, yeah, my name is Alyosha Oshep, and I was raised and born in Slovenia, a quite small country in Central Europe. As you already mentioned, at the moment, I'm working as a postdoc, both at the Technical University. I'm working with Laura Lealtache, and I'm also still working at Carnegie Mellon University, where I'm working with, with uh, Deva Ramanan. So you mentioned that you would like to hear something about how I have gotten into computer vision research. Is it something that you always aspired to do? I would not say always. I think it kind of has gotten gradually to me. But I would say that from a very early days, I knew that I want to, I was really interested in computer science, right? And in programming. So uh, in one way or another, I was uh, interested in that general, general field. Okay. And what was your first exposure to vision and machine learning and AI in general? So I would say that my first exposure to vision, ML and AI was actually at university. Okay. I had some of the courses on uh, computer vision, computer graphics, and the machine learning already during my bachelor studies. But even even before that, as I got interested in uh, computer programming as as a kid. So at, at the beginning, I was interested. You know, like as a kid, of course, I was playing computer games, right? And I was just really, really fascinated with games and all these virtual worlds that come together with computer games, right? So first thing that I really want to understand is how. When, when I was still quite young, right? How this comes to be, right? What is the logic behind all this? How how one makes computer game and virtual worlds and, you know, like all these characters that appear in the game and behave like in somewhat intelligent way, or at least that they appear that they they behave in, in intelligent way. So this is this is really how I got into more general broad direction. So through interest in computer games and computer graphics. But when it comes to computer vision, machine learning, so I think that some of the first memories I have about this come from the time when I was doing my bachelor studies in in Slovenia. So you know that the one way you can think about graphics is it's synthesis, right? You synthesize images, right? The computer vision is kind of opposite process, right? You get images and you have to understand what is in the images or what what in the world has generated those images, right? And uh, I really remember like back in the days I was watching, I know this is a bit nerdy, but I really liked Star Trek, right? Yeah, you're not alone in that. Yeah, right. And one of the coolest things besides traveling around space and, you know, like meeting alien civilization was also this holodeck, right? <laughs> right. I just, just find it so fascinating that they have like this immersive game that just generates context content and you know like you can interact with uh, characters that computer generates and and so forth so this seemed really cool to me but i still remember there was this one episode that i find so fascinating where 
they were trying to recreate something and they have some image of, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what it was, but they have some image and they just fed this to this holodeck and holodeck kind of created 3D reconstruction of that image, right? Then they were analyzing uh, what was happening in this or something like that. But I just remember this idea, you know, of feeding image in and getting 3D reconstruction out, right? That's awesome. So I thought this was really cool, yeah. I should mention that you're doing your postdoc with Laura Leal Taché, or you mentioned that, but I should mention that I interviewed her around this time in 2018. I'm sure it was CVPR related, given the timing. And so in talking about your research interests, it's not just computer vision, it's robot vision. What kinds of problems are you trying to solve? So I would say that in broader sense, I'm really interested in 3D dynamics in understanding, right? Also similar to research interests of Flora. So you assume that you have some mobile platform such as a robot, it's equipped with some sensors, right? It can be camera, one camera, two cameras or several, or and LiDAR. And based on whatever sensors you have, you should be able to get as complete understanding of the world as possible, right? So you should understand the 3D geometry of the world, right? Both static and dynamic, right? You should know where objects are, right? Where cars are, where pedestrians are, and so forth. In addition to that, it's also important that you know how these objects move over time, right? Mm -hmm. And the main reason why it's so important to know how objects move or how objects moved in the past, which really comes uh, relates to multi-object tracking. But the main reason why we want to know this is that we have to make predictions about what happens in next seconds, right? You just can imagine that if you are walking around city or if you are driving a car, what you end up doing most time is navigating into free space, right? So this means that you don't only have to understand the static scene geometry, but you also have to know where everything that moves will be in, in a few seconds, right? So at the, at the higher level, this is what interests me a lot. But if, if I get more specific, I was really fascinated with one particular question in past years, already during my PhD, and I'm, I'm still uh, working on this. So you probably know that nowadays, I would say that Object detection, tracking, and even forecasting models work quite well already, right? We made huge progress in recent years, right? Mm -hmm. But there is um, one important limitation here, and this is it works great as long as you have enough data for particular semantic classes that you're trying to, to recognize, right? For example, if you go out, record data, you will see lots of cars and pedestrians, right? You label them, use them to train models, and everything just works fantastic, right? You can recognize cars, right? But we also have this long tail distribution of semantic classes, right? And lots of semantic classes appear in this long tail, which means that most objects are observed very infrequently, or maybe even never when you're collecting data set, right? Yeah. It just means that during your model training, you don't see some particular object classes, but you still have to recognize them if you, if you really want to navigate around the world. Otherwise, it might be really dangerous, right? If you didn't recognize something because it looks like not like anything you have seen before. And what kind of approaches are you exploring to address this long-tail semantic detection problem? Yeah, so we explored quite some approaches in the past. So the way I started looking in, into this back then was, so my intuition was that to track any object, we can start with something that is based on bottom-up scene understanding, right? So current standard object detection works more in a top-down fashion, right? So, so existing object detection models and bottom approach is more that you get image and you try to figure out how 
pixels group together so that you obtain object instance, right? So which pixels group together to obtain, for example, pedestrian car or something else that you don't know quite what it is, but, you know, based on pixel similarity, you should be able to group these pixels together and then possibly, you know, realize that object is there and then track this object, right? And that's that's bottom up. What is top down? Yeah, for example, the most well-known top-down approach is, for example, faster RCNN. You have a bunch of windows, or we call them region proposals, right? Then based on these region proposals, you try to estimate what this proposal covers, right? Is it a car? Is it a person? Or is it part of a, part of a background? So you don't go from bottom up, from pixels up, but you go from top down. So you're looking at... Region. Kind of regions down. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So we started looking into these uh, bottom-up approaches, but very soon we actually kind of started switching back to uh, top-down data-driven methods. But instead of trying to look at uh, region proposals and classify them as one of the object classes that were available in data sets, such as is it a car, pedestrian, cyclist, you would just train detectors to just tell us whether this region likely contains object or, or not, right? So basically data-driven, we started relying on data-driven object proposals to, to initialize tracks, right? So one cue that we were also looking into at the very beginning was depth, depth estimates, right? So one issue with these object proposals are is that they're quite noisy, right? You will end up having like bunch of object proposals. Some of them will actually detect objects that you have in your scenes, but many of them will also just might be firing certain background region. But the next next cue you can look into is depth. So if if you have a region proposal that is kind of supported with depth estimates, this gives you a strong cue that there actually very likely is, is an object and that you should start a trajectory. And maybe kind of popping back up a level or, or several, when you think about robots, are you primarily, or robotic vision, are you primarily thinking about autonomous vehicle types of use cases? Or do you have, do you even have a particular ideal in mind in terms of the robot itself? So always when I talk about research, I have a wider vision in mind. So I don't only think about autonomous vehicles. I really think about any type of robots. And I even think that we should have perception system that should be applicable to um, for robots that want to drive uh, on the highways, that want to drive in the inner city areas, in potentially very crowded areas, right? Then we might have delivery robots that might even merge into more pedestrian uh, urban areas, right? Or robots that uh, might need to navigate around warehouses, airports, and so forth, right? So it I kind of think that robots, the robots will need to be everywhere in, in, in the future. And I think that perception systems that we, we develop should be, should be general. But one thing I definitely have to admit is that very often when we write papers, we kind of focus on autonomous driving applications and scenarios. And one reason for that is that we just simply have most data sets that were uh, captured for benchmarking and training algorithms for, uh, for autonomous driving. I would love to have more data sets, actually more general data sets. Do you have a sense for some of the ways that that focusing on autonomous vehicles based on data set availability, you know, limits applicability of the work to other types of robots? Yeah, so I think I think that there definitely is certain bias if you are only looking at autonomous vehicle data sets, right? So for example, these data sets are obviously always recorded outside, right? They were inside. 
you might, for example, also over rely on the fact that you can localize yourself outside very well with GPS, for example, right? Localize your pose. This might be impossible indoors, right? Very often, if you look at limited scenarios, such as highways, for example, your diversity of objects that you will observe will actually be quite limited, right? So you learn how to recognize cars, trucks, buses, and a few other classes, and you just think you know how to handle everything, right? But this is this def- definitely not true, right? Or visual world is way richer than than that. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of localization, one of the papers that you're presenting at CVPR is called Text to Pause, Text to Point Cloud, Cross-Modal Localization. Let's dig into that a little bit. What's the kind of big picture problem that you're trying to solve with this paper? Mm-hmm, sure. I would actually start a bit with motivation for this. Or, or be, be, before I even do that, let me just uh, already tell you up front that this paper is about localizing um, position within a map, 3D map of the environment based on an actual description of what is in the surrounding, right? You can you can imagine yourself that you are somewhere in a city, you don't know where exactly, you see some things around, right? There might be church in front of you, some trees uh, or something like that. And uh, you're explaining to your friend what you see, uh, see and your friend should re- realize where you are based on this description, right? If, if your friend, of course, knows the rough environment of the city where, you, where you're in, right? I imagine that in the future, robots will, of course, be used for many things, such as, uh, for example, food delivery, right? Or, you know, like instead of Uber drivers picking us up to transport us somewhere, just robots will come to pick us up. And uh, sometimes, sometimes a GPS stack works great, but not always. One thing that, for example, is particularly realized is particularly frustrating. Usually where we are somewhere at the campus, right? Let it be Technical University of Munich or Carnegie Mellon campus. We, we often have meetings and we use food delivery services to deliver us food, right? And you would think that this is easy to find us, but it turns out it's really not. So what we end up doing, for example, to, if, you, if you use DoorDash, for example, you write a detailed description on how to reach us, right? And even after this detailed description, where, for example, Smith Hall is where, where I was uh, working until recently, they would still very often get lost at the campus and call us and ex- ask for more directions, right? And so it's all, always a bit, a bit of a hassle. So this is why we also envision that when the robots will take over, we also need to find a way to communicate with them where they need to go, right? And we want to do this communication in natural language because natural language is what us humans are used to communicate. So this is like more like an overall vision. Right now, now if I get more to the task that this paper is addressing, so here I have to say upfront that this is one of the first investigation of uh, this problem, right? So we had to take quite some shortcuts to making this investigation of this uh, problem feasible, right? Just hearing the way you describe the problem, it strikes me that there are, of course, multiple ways to come at it. You know, one is you know the the paper is called text to point cloud. Can also envision like text to landmark somehow trying to localize, not necessarily where you are, but the landmarks that you're describing and and somehow triangulate from that. Talk a little bit more about the way you set up the problem. Sure, sure. So this comment was just spot on because this is this is actually the part of what the, what the method does, right? Triangulating landmarks, right? Okay. I mean, this is this is the second stage. So we have like course localization stage and file localization stage, right? So what you just mentioned comes into the fine phase. I will just first touch the course phase and then, then I will get back to this, right? Okay. So in the course phase, we basically just 
split the 3D point cloud of the city or of some neighborhood into rectangular tiles, right? There, I don't remember what the, exactly the size is, but you know, it's like some a bit larger area that you first have to find, right? So first, you want to find like a, this uh, rectangular area in where you very likely uh, you are located in, right? And when you say tiles, are you thinking like open street map tiles or something along those lines? No, we actually have in practice LiDAR uh, point clouds, so map that were um, built from LiDAR point clouds. Oh, okay. And the data set we actually use for that is the new Kitty360 data set from a research group of Andreas Geiger. Okay. But this, this data set, of course, contains only these uh, point clouds maps and not actual description, right? But this is how we actually generated data set. It's a different story. I'm curious your what your starting assumption is are you assuming you know no gps or coarse gps and you're using that for the first phase and then you're using the text base for the second phase so this this is also a great question and actually we assume no gps okay the only assumption we make is that we have instance segmentations available in our map right so that we know where the houses are, we know where the trees are, and, and so forth. So we assume instance and semantic information in, in our maps. And how fine-grained are your classes? Like, do you just have building, 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 or do you have church, supermarket, campus building, whatever? No, we don't have that fine-grained information. It's more like building, tree, car, uh, road, and, and so forth. Yeah. Okay. All right, so go on and, and finish with the, the first part of the method. So, so first part is just course localization, but you could also use GPS for that. That's, that's true. But since we didn't have GPS, we just pose this as a retrieval problem. We have textual descriptions, we have our point cloud patches, and we just learned joint embedding space for both, right? Similar to how Clip works, where they aligned images and textual descriptions, but you align point clouds and textual descriptions. And based on this uh, learned joint embedding space, you can then based on textual description, get like a list of most likely cells that contain your object. So this is the course localization step. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that there's like a, I don't know, something that I think of as like a bootstrapping problem. Like, you know, if I'm giving directions, I assume a certain amount of knowledge that would be hard to get from instance labels, like, you know, on the Wash U campus or, you know, someplace that I am at a Starbucks or something like that. Or is that kind of knowledge being introduced somewhere not yet and i think this is right now the biggest limitation of our of our method so to incorporate such a fine-grained information we would have to go a step forward a step further and align our point clouds with something like you mentioned earlier open street map right okay and then then you actually get access to such fine-grained information right so what kind of building is it starbucks sign and and so forth but in this paper, uh, we didn't have that available because it is as a future work, but we haven't. Yeah, uh, you have to start somewhere. It, but it sounds like then conclusion would be that you're trying to localize within a relatively constrained area. Is that true? I'm not sure what with constraint means because in principle, this should work anywhere in the city area for which we have a map in form of point clouds. Right. Okay. But of course, uh, there is this restriction that if I just tell you that I see, I don't know, traffic side in front, church on the right, something else here and there, right? 
this this description fits several locations in the city, right? Got it. Yeah. So you have this uncertainty of where you are. And if you wanted to make this non-ambiguous, you would really either have to go for, for example, GPS that coarsely localizes you, right? Then this narrows down the search space, or you would have to have information such as, is there Starbucks next to me or a street name or something like that, right? Something that really severely narrows down the initial search stage, right? Or even a dialogue-based approach where the system can identify differentiating characteristics of the three places and ask you, do you see a street sign near, near you or something like that? That also, uh, I think it's it's very important that we that we incorporate into this process in the future because, of course, this is how conversation with humans work, right? It's not like you just describe where you are and then the other person just you know click knows where you are. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the course part of the the course phase of the method. What's the fine phase or the second part? When it comes to the fine phase, we do pretty much exactly what you said earlier, right? So based on descriptions, find the landmarks that you refer to, right? So, you know, if you mention a sign, then, you know, the network has to realize that there was a sign mentioned in the sentence and align this with instance of a sign within your rectangular area, right? So you kind of match words that refer to objects with instances. And once you do this matching, you you regress offset to, to, to those. Got it. And is success for the model returning a list of possible locations or are you then further trying to guess or predict which of the locations the user, do you apply some kind of confidence to a list or are you only predicting one with a confidence level? Like what's the output of the model? Yeah, so we predict several possible locations. And the reason for that is the course localization step that is inherently uncertain, right? So you might be in several cells, right? So you get a ranked list. And then the evaluation is, the evaluation is also done with respect to top. You look at localization retrieval success with respect to top five, top 10, or top 15 matches. Okay. We've now come back to the data set conversation. So how did you create the data set? Yeah, so this this is this is actually uh, also one of the main parts of the paper, right? Because in theory, this sounds like kind of difficult because if you need a uh, list of annotated posts and someone writing descriptions, this would take lots of time and lots of resources, <laughs> sure. lots of resources that we don't have, right? <laughs> so you kind of have to find have to find the hacky way around this. And what we ended up doing was. Uh, so, you know, I already mentioned we had Kitty 360, list of instances and semantic meaning. And we also have a color channel available, right? Because they, they align images and, and lighter points. So what we ended up doing was we sampled a bunch of points all around cities. And then we looked at what uh, some instances are in a spatial neighborhood, right? For this, you really need 3D data, right? And then if you know that there is a house, a house in front of you, then you can kind of generate based on some language template a description uh, that mentioned these objects. And uh, you can uh, you can also mention something about color, for example, of the object that is in front of you based on extracted RGB color from, from instances or, or semantic class, right? You also have semantic classes. Hmm. So in a sense, it's kind of a synthetic generation, synthetically generated data set. You pick a point and then you can come up with a list of possible descriptions that refer to that point. Exactly, yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Is the the model 
kind of end-to-end train from natural language to the list of predicted locations? Or are you kind of tokenizing the natural language and, and trying to identify the landmarks as an intermediate step? Yeah, so so model is actually trained end to end to end. The course and the finer tutorial steps are trained independently, but other than that, end to end. So we have point clouds encoders, point cloud encoders, and the language encoders. You talked about the data set that you created to train the model. You know that suggests that maybe you you didn't have any external benchmarks to compare your performance to, but maybe you're publishing this and hoping to get other folks kind of using the same data set to create kind of compete for best performance is that kind of the thinking mm-hmm. yeah this is exactly what you did right so when we started investigating this there was not no really data set or uh, prior work to to compare with so this is uh, this is kind of a first investigation into into this topic yeah and do you think your initial approach did pretty well and you nailed it and there's not a lot of room for folks to to one up you or you know, is it kind of a, a rough start and there's lots more room to, to go to do better on the data set? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that absolutely the latter. I think that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess that's the humility test, right? <laughs> <laughs> I actually see it more that this this investigation, more that it actually opens more questions than answers almost. I mean, in, in the sense that earlier we just talked about this course localization step, right? Uh, for, ex- for example, here... Uh, this was one of the outcomes that this is really the bottleneck, right? If you can coarsely localize yourself correctly, then you become pretty accurate at localization. But this is definitely right now the bottleneck. And I think that this is, will be the first thing that people will have to look into how to improve. But of course, the question is now, I mean, of course, I'm sure that people can, can come up with better networks, right? And given data that we have, can improve localization scores, right? But there's also just so far you can go because there's this inherent uncertainty, right? Based on one description and not like very precise information, you could be in any of uh, locations if you have big area to cover, right? So I think it will be really important to, uh, as as we talked about earlier, right? To align this with OpenStreetMaps and rely on uh, more more discriminative and unique cues for, for describing location. Yeah, yeah. Second paper that you are presenting at CVPR is focused on forecasting from LIDAR via future object detection, or at least that's the title of the paper. And the focus is kind of on joint detection and trajectory prediction. Talk a little bit about the motivation for that one. Motivation here comes directly from from robot navigation, right? So I uh, I'm, I was talking already earlier about object detection and object tracking, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, object tracking is all about understanding how object moved in the past, right? But if you really want to navigate, it's not important to know where objects were. You have to know where objects will be, right? And uh, one way you can tackle this, and this was already tackled in the community, is that you're detecting objects, you are associating associating them over time to get tracks, and then based on past tracks, you can, you know, like train some possibly autoregressive model that gives you prediction where objects will be, right? Mm-hmm. But there are bunch of problems associated with that and one of them is that object tracking is very difficult by itself right and the question is even do you really need object tracks to do forecasting or could you just encode a sequence of point cloud and just train network to directly detect objects and predict where they where they will be right i mean i'm not saying that tracking is not important i think it is but it might be that 
model actually implicitly learns by itself what it has to know about past positions of objects. So tracking kind of becomes implicit in, in this case. In a sense, it's a similar bottoms-up versus top-down type of distinction that we were talking about earlier. The current approaches are kind of top-down in that they're trying to identify object instances and then they have to track them, you know, and they might be occluded for periods of time and things like that. And it gets really hard. And your hope is that, hey, just feed it a bunch of point data and let the network figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I feel that this is kind of a lesson learned uh, over and over, right? Just <laughs> fit fit enough data and let let the network figure out things by itself. Don't uh, don't mess with that too much. And I also have to say that by this, I'm not saying that tracking is not important, right? Tracking is important for a number of other applications, but when it comes to to navigation, it really might be that uh, what we need to look into is forecasting and not necessarily so much uh, so much tracking. Although, on the other hand, it's still nice to have this interpretability aspect of this, right, to, that you get with tracking. And, and this is maybe jumping way ahead, but, you know, maybe there's some kind of multitask objective where you're trying to do forecasting, but have tracking be kind of a byproduct of the network that, you know, has some of the benefits that multitask learning can provide. Yeah, this this makes perfect sense, especially if this hypothesis that I mentioned earlier, that if you know how to do forecasting, you somewhat have to know some idea about tracking implicitly, right? If this hypothesis is correct, then features that we learn to do forecasting should also benefit tracking, right? So I, d I don't have answer for this yet, whether this is so, but I think this is definitely something that we should uh, pick into. So talk a little bit about the, your method. First thing I should say is that our method is not the first one that tackles end-to-end -end detection and, and forecasting. There have been very interesting papers on this topic uh, before, for example, from a group of Raquel Lurtason from the uh, University of, uh, of Toronto. And um, one thing that is quite unique with our method is that, that it actually offers multi-future interpretation, right? Forecasting is not something that I mean, forecasting is, as just as in the paper that we were talking about earlier, right, it's inherently ambiguous, right? Based on past velocity, you could make several guesses where objects uh, will be, right? And uh, our, our method is actually capable of that. And the way that we achieve this is actually, in the end, really simple. We just repurpose object detectors for not just detecting objects in the current frame that we just observed, but also in the future frames that we haven't observed yet. So by encoding a temporal sequence, you can just fit this sequence to the network and then say, hey, detect objects in current frame, but also in future time steps, right? So you just have, you will have multiple detection heads for future time steps and you have supervision for that readily available, right? Mm -hmm. But what is nice with this is that you can then go instead of, you know, like, doing forecasting from time t into the future, you can do something different and you can go into the future and backcast, right? So from the last detection, you can backcast the vector to previous frame and from there to uh, the previous frame and so forth. And then you will also have uh, one-to-many mapping, right? So it might, it might be that to one detection from t to t minus one, two detections might connect to this one, right? In this sense, you have one-to-many map. And this kind of defines this tree of possible uh, possible splitting paths. And if you can connect your backcasts all the way back to particular detection, then you can say these paths are my forecasts, right? Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but does this kind of open up some of the graphical types of tools to you? Actually, 
we we didn't use these tools, but this is one thing that we were definitely thinking next. That this is also something that uh, that we could do even more rigorously by relying on the graph neural networks, right? What we did was actually something something rather simple. So we just have multiple network heads that detect objects in future frames. And then we just from each detection regress a single offset vector backwards. And then just based on Euclidean distance, say whether some detection based on back asset vector connects with some detection from, from the previous frame. So based on the Euclidean distance of the regressed offset vector. And what did you use for data set here? Um, I'm assuming based on the description that you needed to have labeled objects in the, the frames. Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. So we used a new since dataset. So this is one of the popular automotive datasets that we are using nowadays. And uh, yeah, for this we of course need supervision in the form of three D bounding boxes and object tracks. So we we built on we built on that. So in the case of forecasting from lidar and the object detection. You mentioned earlier that this is a problem that has been well-studied and there are existing methods that have been developed to solve this problem. How did your method perform relative to the existing work? Well, I have short and long answer. So the short answer <laughs> is <laughs> it works better. <laughs> okay. The long answer is, and this was also a really big part of this paper, that metrics used in the past for this problem, for end-to-end -end detection forecasting, were actually not the the right metrics for studying this problem. And we actually have a big, big part of the paper showing this, that these metrics can be trivially fooled. And we also have proposed new metrics that, that don't have those issues. I'm not sure into how much details you want me to go into this because this is something that <laughs> I could actually talk a lot about. But uh... I'm curious. I'd like to hear a little bit more. I mean, it sounds like if the metrics can be trivial, the old metrics can be trivially fooled, then your method performs better on both the old metrics and the new metrics. If nothing else, you could trivially fool the old metrics. This is correct. Uh, our, our method does universe work well on, on both metrics, both sets of metrics. But the reason why we were looking into evaluation here is previous metrics were adopted for more traditional forecasting setting uh, that we're studying in the past years. And the other setting was that someone gives you ground truth trajectories and based on given perfect ground truth trajectories, just predict continuation, right? But this is not the case in end-to-end -end forecasting, right? Because you don't have previous trajectories. Because you don't have those, right? Yeah. So in this setting where you have past trajectories, they used metrics that are called average and absolute displacement errors, right? So absolute displacement errors error is quite simply looking at, you look at your prediction, you look at the ground truth prediction, and if they're close enough, then you know you did a good forecast, right? But you, the farther away you are, pen, you are from the ground truth, the more you are penalized, right? Yeah. And uh, another metric that is usually used penalizes false forecasts. So forecasts that are nowhere close to any ground truth forecast. One thing that community did when they started looking into end-to-end -end forecasting was that they evaluated separately object detection 
And then they evaluated this absolute and average trajectory errors with respect to certain detection recall. Mm -hmm. For example, for 60 or 90% recall, right? And what can then in theory happens is that you train object detector in a way the detector will focus on detecting objects for which forecasting is easy. And there is a particular type of uh, forecast for that. And this is namely are objects that don't move at all, right? <laughs> are just mm -hmm. static there. And what is even more problematic is most objects don't move, right? If you're driving through the city, you see parked cars everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we actually have shown that it's possible to trick these metrics by a very simple baseline. And this is... Just say that no object moves? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so so we showed that this was the best approach, right? Better than uh, anything proposed in the literature, which, which is, of course, not the case, right? Those models are great. It's just that the metric was wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, not wrong, but... Inappropriate for the data set or for a real world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So our, our intuition was that we should somehow find a way not uh, evaluation of detection and forecasting together, right? Intuitively, you know, if you look at object detection community, they really have great evaluation tools, right? Mean, mean average precision is, you know, great metric that is widely used, has, uh, you know, survived the past the test of time, right? So our intuition was that we should use in one way or another uh, MAP, uh, mean, mean average precision. And it turned out that we can do this quite easily. Everything that we need to do is we need to change the matching criterion, right? What is considered to be true positive, false positive and false negative, right? And what we said was if you correctly detected an object and correctly forecasted, right? And these two, so that, that you both have correct detection and correct forecast, then you have a true positive. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, this metric we call forecasting uh, mean average, mean average precision. Got it. Got it. Is this metric, was this also introduced in this paper? I was going to ask, have you seen anyone else publish against it? But it may be early. Uh, no, we, we we didn't see. So this is something that was also published in, in this paper. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I wanted to make sure we cover the third paper as well. You are a busy guy at CVPR. That one is opening up open world tracking. Tell us about that paper. What's the motivation there? Yeah, gladly. So this this is actually a really paper that I'm extremely excited about because the motivation dates way back in days when I was still doing my uh, my PhD, right? And I already touched earlier this problem of that we need to be able to track any objects, right? We can't expect that we have training data for everything. And during my PhD, I was working on trackers for tracking any object, but once, but here you really have fundamental problem, right? You would come up with a model and then you have to say how good your model is, right? But how, how you're going to do this, right? Back then, a few years back, we didn't have data sets or benchmarks or even the right metrics to, to talk about this. So I always had to find some hacky ways to, you know, make a point that what we are proposing works, right? But there was never like really a right rigorous way or, you know, benchmark that would really help community to rigorously evaluate methods, study progress, compare different methods app to app. So yeah. this the motivation for this paper is really to come up with tools to do this so that the community can, uh, can make progress. And this is what this paper largely is about. So this paper doesn't really propose a drastically new method for this. It, more than that, it uh, rather proposes a testbed for evaluating this and kind of have experimental evaluation that reconsolidates different contributions in tracking by distilling out a good tracker, a good simple baseline for this task. 
Okay. And is the tracker, is it a metric or a, a tool, an environment? I'm not clear on what specifically you're creating. I should be more uh, more precise on this. So we actually provide a benchmark for this. And this benchmark okay. consists of a data set, evaluation metric, and baselines, right? But the data itself, it's not something that we uh, recorded. For, uh, for data set itself, we repurpose tau data set. It's called tracking any object data set. And it comes from our uh, collaborators. Uh, back then, we were collaborators when we started this. It wasn't at Carnegie Mellon yet. Uh, so this comes from the group of uh, Deva Ramanan, uh, whom I'm also now uh, working with. But Tau dataset by itself was released to study tracking in the long tail, right? But not in the open world. And with this paper, we repurposed it for studying object tracking in the open world. And what we did was we, we split training and test data as follows. We, for Training the models, we proposed to use COCO dataset that has labels for 80 object classes, right? And then in Tau dataset, we have labels for uh, several more uh, objects, right? For, for hundreds of object classes. And we then define a test bet such that you train your models with knowledge of 80 classes. Then you do validation on additional set of semantic classes, right? Then you have additional test set in which you have semantic classes that don't even appear on validation set, right? So that you make sure that nothing is, you know, kind of leaking from one split or of another. And here's actually one important distinction, because usually you make sure that when you have training, test, and validation split, that the data doesn't overlap, right? And you also have to make sure that semantic classes don't overlap, right? So that in each set you have semantic classes that you can say, okay, these are the unknowns. And I uh, I didn't train anything or tune any parameters with the knowledge of, of these classes. Got it, got it, got it. So the when you say open world here, are you using that term colloquially or does that have a, a specific meaning or does it refer to a specific environment in this context? Yeah, so... So the term itself, open world, is of course borrowed from the community, right? You you probably know about this uh, this classic work from uh, Bolt and uh, Bendale, right? Where they studied open world recognition, and there there they study study open world recognition in the sense that you know you have some certain close set of object classes on which you train your model during the deployment phase. You will see new objects you haven't seen before. You have to recognize them. Then you kind of have to ask annotators to label them, right? So we borrowed part of this idea behind this, right? So we also have some closed world data set, right? In which we have some finite set of classes labeled. And then we study study performance of those models in the open setting, in which classes that we haven't seen during training also appear, right? Got it. Got it. So it's, it's describing the setting. I think I was envisioning like a simulation environment. So you provide this data set and this kind of benchmarking approach. Did you also provide kind of proof of concept models? You know, did you kind of bootstrap the effort? And what does that look like? Yeah, so... This, I would say, it's something that is rather simple and builds on really on contributions from a multi-object tracking community. So the tracker itself is at the end of the day, really follows this tracking by detection paradigm, right? Which means that you have some kind of object detector that gives you possible object detections in each frame. And then by some means, you connect these detections over time, right? But there are, of course, certain important differences. And first one is that you're Ob that you cannot really train object detector for object class for which you have no labels for, right? This object detector is a bit more like object proposal generator. I, I touched this briefly at the very beginning. So we just repurposed MaskRCNN, so in particular the region proposal mechanism of MaskRCNN, 
but we also uh, made sure that we obtain object instance segmentations for, for each proposal, right? And these proposals are then kind of, you, you know, you have lots of them in the image and they are like kind of input to the tracker. And then tracker figures out over time which proposals are temporally stable, right? Which it can connect over time. And those will be then our, our object tracks. Okay. When you describe the the simple method of kind of this proof of concept method that you ran against the benchmark that you're proposing it sounded like what we described as kind of this top-down traditional approach where you have these objects and you're trying to track them across time the you know objects from bounding boxes that you're trying to to track across time when we previously spoke about the forecasting from lidar paper we kind of contrasted that top-down approach with the bottoms-up approach that, you know, starts at point cloud or in another setting, maybe pixels. And I'm kind of wondering if the methods that you developed in that paper could be a future direction for someone tackling this open-world tracking problem, or are they, you know, I'm really trying to test my understanding and see how they fit together, or are they totally unrelated and I'm, I'm off here? No, so it's not totally unrelated. So there there are some gaps, definitely, because what I was talking about er at the beginning, it was mainly 3D computer vision, and it was uh, largely uh, relying on 3D sensors, right? And this opening up open world tracking is purely image-based. So uh, here here we haven't talked about 3D at all. But there is uh, one thing that, uh, if, if I understood correctly, you were asking if we could, uh, instead of doing this separation, you know, detection and then linking things uh, to do something more like we did in the previous two papers and just do any, everything in end-to-end manner, right? Yeah. And uh, indeed, the community is definitely moving in direction of doing multi-object tracking in end-to-end manner. And there, are, there are several very nice approaches out there to do that, uh, methods that based on graph neural networks or just, you know, regress targets or, or use end-to-end transformer-based detectors for tracking segmentation. So there are many of them. But this particular data set and challenge makes things especially difficult because most tracking data sets before focused on tracking pedestrians or cars and pedestrians, right? And you will have a few objects in the scene and uh, shorter sequences. And this data set is really huge and you have jungle of objects pretty much, right? Got it. And uh, we just haven't been able to apply those methods to this problem yet. We, you very quickly run into issue with memory and training time and, and so forth. So I think that the method that is closer closest to being end to and is Tractor that also comes from uh, from Laura's group. Okay. But uh, Tractor was lagging behind the baseline that, that we proposed. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Alyosha, it's been really wonderful learning a bit about your research and CVPR papers. We'll, of course, have links to the papers on the show notes page for folks to check out the full details, but wanted to thank you for taking the time to join us and share a bit about what you've been up to. Yeah, I would also uh, like to thank you for inviting me here. I uh, really had a great time discussing our, our, our recent research. So it's a really nice discussion and uh, I hope to see you at CVPR as well. And uh, I'll also, also encourage the audience to, to come to our posters or just if you see me anywhere, just wave. And I'm always happy to chat about research anywhere, anytime. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.